0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: Having long compiled the fun facts to know and tell for a popular children's monthly, Jane Wevedor was none too surprised to learn from her co-worker, Connie, that the human body, shedding skin cells on a constant basis, thereby disposes of its own weight in dead tissue once every four years. But she was taken aback the following morning, four years to the day after moving into her apartment, when her own discarded skin accumulated into a featureless gray figure, Jane's own size and weight, and dragged itself on its belly into her bedroom. She would have been petrified, but for the fact that she was only semi-conscious. Assuming herself to be dreaming when she heard the dull thud that opened her eyes, she watched impassively as the vaguely humanoid thing shifted a bit to its left and again tried, this time successfully, to make its way through her open bedroom door. Having no eyes, it transported itself, she observed, by trial and error. Recalling what Connie had said, Jane smirked. Amused by, and a little impressed with, the scenario her subconscious had concocted, out of such an innocuous little datum. The thing by then had stopped advancing. Earless and blind, it nonetheless seemed to sense that someone was near. Straightening its arms into a sort of push-up position, it lifted its torso off the carpet and craned its neck in her direction. The thing then reached out toward her with one arm, its digitless, undifferentiated hand perhaps a meter from her face, attempting to locate by touch the presence it could neither hear nor see nor smell. After just a moment, its other arm kind of shuddered under the thing's weight and then gave way. With another thud, it hit the floor, what would have been its face, first, and it was at that moment, feeling through her bed frame, the slight vibration from the body's impact, that it dawned on Jane that she was not dreaming, but was wide awake.
0: Paul McComas is the author of two novels, Planet of the Dates and Unplugged. He's the author of a short story collection, 20 Questions, and the editor of two short fiction anthologies, First Person Imperfect and Further Persons Imperfect. His newest collection is Unforgettable, Harrowing Futures, Horrors, and Dark Humor. Thank you for joining me, Paul.
1: Thank you, Rick, and I'm reminded uh, why I called it Unforgettable, so that when people introduce me talking about the book, they say, his new collection is Unforgettable, (laughs) and there's an instant blurb right there. (laughs)
0: Well, that's some smart, (laughs) built-in marketing. Um, One of the things I I like about all your writing is your, your means of externalizing and getting us to see things that we don't normally see. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, of Planet of the Dates, which is this wonderful look at the inside workings of a male adolescent mind, which I think are, are much underestimated, underrated, and you gave us a great uh, perspective into that. So I'd like you to talk about that as your first work, um, because it uh, the male adolescent mind is at ad- is uh, quite interested in the kind of fiction we find in your latest work.
1: You're right. Uh, Now it's interesting. You've made uh, an assumption that a lot of people do and that's that my coming of age novel was my first work. Mm. But actually I wrote it in my late 30s. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was preceded by 20 questions and unplugged. Mm -hmm. And that was quite intentional. I wanted the objective remove of writing as someone older. I didn't want to write my coming of age piece in my 20s. So that I would be able to have that wry, detached voice looking back in bemusement, but then shrink the gap between then and now during emotionally loaded scenes and moments. But yes, he, uh, the the young protagonist the Planet of the Day, it's a 16-year-old boy named Phil. He makes fright films and science fiction films in his basement uh, and in the backyard. And he lives and breathes this stuff. When he gets a part-time job as a night janitor at an office building, He does it with uh, an eye toward, how can this be turned into a kind of movie? Uh, When I'm emptying the trash, uh, maybe I'm looking a la James Bond for uh, secret photos that have been, quote unquote, discarded. When I'm disposing of medical waste, perhaps the Andromeda strain is a possibility here. (laughs) (laughs) But then what happens is uh, suddenly the aliens, robots, and werewolves are less important and women are more important and, and he is trying to make these two worlds not collide but mesh. And, of course, they collide instead. <laughs> it's much more
0: interesting. Now, uh, one of the things that's most delightful about that book is this kind of wry voice that you achieve. And I'm wondering how that came about. Did you have to write your way into it and then find the groove, or did you just barf it all out and then, <laughs> and then go back and uh, remove the particulate matter from <laughs> the
1: computer? You know, there's the blurb I want to use. Uh, <laughs> the latter, Rick. <laughs> it was a a, a vomitous uh, <laughs> dynamic, essentially. Yeah, the, the voice emerged full-blown, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and perhaps it got tweaked along the way. I think it was while writing that I realized that the wry tone would allow me, in chosen spots, to abandon the remove. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Again, moments that are particularly painful or loaded or close to the bone. Uh, Those are moments when my older narrator looking back feels as if he has returned Mm -hmm. to that moment, to that situation, to that loss. And, uh, you know, I've read a lot of of coming-of-age books. The best ones, I think, and I'm thinking Herman Rauch Summer of 42, Mm -hmm. are the ones that are essentially comedic, but that also have room for the other... It's a time of painfully earnest young people, but that doesn't mean the book has to be pain, painfully earnest. My protagonist does, but I, as author, do not.
0: You know, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned Summer of 42 because I read Summer of 42 when I was that age. Right, so did and I. I. <laughs> I think it's really interesting <laughs> that how these books uh, reach out and affect us, and, you know, from one generation to the next you talked about uh, some of the other uh, coming-of-age novels now when you sat down to create your own one of the things i think that's really interesting about this book is how honest it is for Thank us. You. how because and it's pain a bit painfully so but you managed to make that pain readable and so that we can read it without wincing right and, so talk about how to um make the pain real and sure. make it Honest, but not make us just wince and cringe in terror.
1: <laughs> I think there are wince-inducing indu- moments in the book, uh, but uh, but I always stop short of the cringe. That, mm. There's the
0: <laughs> okay. There you go. There, I like that. There's the goal. <laughs> the metric. <laughs> exactly.
1: How do you do it? Um, with a goodly dollop of humor here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is essentially a comedic book. It is more comedy than it is drama. Mm-hmm. If the ratio were reversed, then we'd be into cringe territory. So I think really it it may just come down to frequency and focus. Because I'm primarily telling a funny story about growing up, I think I have the leeway. The, gra- the I have the leeway to be serious here and there. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I haven't had that question before, and so of course I'm flummoxed. Uh, (laughs) So congratulations on that. But uh, part of of the reason that I'm perhaps able to do what you're talking about is because I'm not writing a memoir. Mm. It is fiction. In the case of this book, highly autobiographical fiction, but fiction nonetheless. I made this character two years younger than myself and made a couple of other fairly superficial changes, so that it would be easier to let the story go in Phil's direction rather than having it hew very closely to my own.
0: You know, I was thinking about uh, that when you said it was fiction, and one of the things I like about your uh, genre fiction is it does a great job of externalizing stuff and using using the genre to talk about things that you can't otherwise talk about in the way uh, Rod Cernling famously did right and it struck me that t- to me that you are using the fictionalization process and by in that kind of distance that you that you created by making the character younger than yourself to in a sense make it easier for you to externalize your own experiences and recreate them as something more affecting Thank you I think you're on to something <laughs> uh,
1: I know that in the specific case of Planet of the Dates, There were incidents I wanted to draw upon that I lived when I was the age Phil is in the book, 16 going on 17. But there were also incidents I wanted to draw from that took place a couple of years later in the summer of 1980. Mm -hmm. So by making it a book set in the summer of 1980, but with a 16-year-old protagonist, I was able to incorporate all of those experiences. The punk bar stuff, that did not happen when I was 16. It happened when I was 18, 19. But the disco stuff, going in there with a fake ID and trying to to hit on the older woman, who of course is like 22, (laughs) that did happen when I was 16. So I'm able to access more of my own lived reality by scotching the age and scotching the truth. I mean, the the paradox of fiction, finally, I think always is that by telling so-called lies, untruths, you can get at a greater, a deeper truth than the memoirist. Who's so worried about how am I coming across in this? I have to write an entertaining story, but it also has to be literally true. I don't especially need Especially now. Yeah, especially <laughs> now, after and, and, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. You know, he got in trouble and he should have. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's truth in advertising. This is Julia Keller's quote from the Chicago Tribune. Just like we want to know the ingredients of something we're putting into our stomachs before we do, we should have the same advantage when we're putting something into our mind.
0: Know? What an interesting thought. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> now, uh, you mentioned the disco scene, the punk bar scene. You're a musician yourself, and you played in bands, and I love the, the way you use music in your work, and, and we can talk a little bit about Unplugged, uh, but talk about how uh, music has informed and influenced your work as a writer, and which came first for you, and which still comes first for you?
1: Music came later. Uh, writing and film came first kind of simultaneously Mm -hmm. and to the extent that, you know, as you say, I'm able to describe things in a a way that is easy to to see and to live while reading. That's because of film. Mm. I've been called a cinematic writer of fiction and sometimes that's meant as a compliment, other times it's not. (laughs) Other times it's been an excuse for not publishing me, Uh, you know, from more kind of old guard. Uh, folks. But I was writing short stories very young, and I was also making movies very young. A lot of what I've learned about narrative development came from watching and making films. Mm -hmm. So now when I'm writing, basically seeing these things play out on the screen in my mind.
0: Talk about the kind of technology you used as a young filmmaker. It wasn't so easy as it is today. (laughs) You can't just download it and edit it in an iMovie. My God, the good the iMovie is better than what the probably what Steven Spielberg put together Close Encounters with. Absolutely. (laughs) It is.
1: uh, Well it seemed easy at the time because it's all we had. It's all we knew. My dad got a Super 8 movie camera and at that moment had no use for his standard 8. Mm. So he gave it to me. I was 11. I'd grown up watching and loving movies and oh my god. Now I had the chance to make them. I got to crack the code. Now The standard 8 means that you shoot a minute 40 or something a minute 50 and then you have to go into a dark room open the camera and turn the reel around super 8 was the cartridge that was the uh, you know the
0: boy that's that, that's some old, that's some <laughs> that's some uh, steamy tech like yeah it's question. actually
1: a 16 millimeter roll but you shoot one side of it first mm-hmm. from start to finish and then you turn it around and shoot the other wow editing was done with a splicer and pieces of tape mm. Some of the films didn't survive that <laughs> because if you're off just a little bit on your sprocket hole alignment, uh-huh. the projector is going to chew it up. Mm. So there are some lost scenes, which will never <laughs> turn up on the DVD extras, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, I love the analog nature of it, frankly. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a Luddite, a little bit of a technophobe. You look at the cover of the new book, Unforgettable, and you know, since this is radio, I guess I'd better quickly describe it. Here's a kind of a voodoo priestess. Uh, kneeling on an altar before a looming robot, um, perhaps 20 or 30 feet tall. She's hoisting up a cybernetic robo-snake and worshiping the robot with it. And she looks fine from behind. It is in part a tribute to the raunchy covers of the raunchy genre paperbacks I grew up reading, but it's also meant to say something about our, I would say, descent into an almost worship of tech, mm-hmm. uh, which leaves us perhaps in the end reverting into a kind of neo prim- a kind of neo primitivism, where we're hoisting the robot snake up to the robot god and losing something of our humanity in the process.
0: Y- your book uh, unforgettable, or I'm sorry. Uh,
1: Yes, there are two similarly <laughs> titled books. Yes.
0: Your book, Unplugged, yes. uh, is, a, is a music kind of memoir. It is. Uh, talk about uh, writing about that and, and creating that kind of, writing about one kind of art, using one kind of art to view another when you've participated in both. Mm-hmm. Does that a, a plus or a minus?
1: Oh, I think it's definitely a plus. Here I'm telling the story of this fictitious rock star, Dana Clay, and to get to know her since that's that's her identity it's her career it's who she is she's a musician a songwriter a guitarist singer i needed to be able to draw from her body of work but she's fictitious (laughs) so couldn't go into the record store and 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 buy the cd i had to write the songs myself i've got a band together with uh, basically the people i've been playing with since since 82 Mm -hmm. this pop punk band that we've had going called the daves because none of us is named dave wonderful lead singer Kim Ha, and she became the voice of Dana Clay with my lyrics, my melodies. I was then able to draw upon her oeuvre, and so each you informed created the, the other. Music,
0: you created the music first?
1: I started on the music first.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. What a great approach.
1: Thanks, and then it became a conversation between uh-huh. the songs I was, I was continuing to write, and the book as it was developing, what I found is that it was so much easier for me to write songs in the voice of Dana Clay than just write songs myself (laughs) (laughs) because I I, you know I'm a fiction writer it's all Mm -hmm. about characterization for me Mm -hmm. before plot before theme before setting characters that's my bread and butter Um, which makes for an interesting fit in genre because genre I think often sells characters short Mm -hmm. but we can talk about that Um, this character of Dana Clay I need to get to know her to write her story to tell her tale and uh, that's where the the songs came in
0: now um this book is also a, a look at, at depression, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's an interesting a uh, uh, theme, an important theme, because it's it's more common than we expect and hard to diagnose and, and difficult to deal with. It's not like a, something you can go to the dentist and get a filling that's for, right. is it?
1: That's it's not, an, and, it, and it's a real life horror.
0: And it's something you experienced as well.
1: Absolutely, I've had my struggles with it over the years, including fairly recently. Um, one of the things that pulled me out of the last bout was getting the deal for Unforgettable, that rare case of a publisher approaching an author. I'd heard of that, but never experienced it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a real-life horror, and that's why I did include an excerpt from Unplugged in Unforgettable uh, alongside the, the lion-shaped drinking fountain that comes to life. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> uh, There are horrors that are escapist, uh-huh. and there are horrors that are allegorical, mm-hmm. and then there are horrors that simply are. Mm -hmm. And there are dystopias that simply are. As I say in my preface, you read um, Black Elk's autobiography, Black Elk Speaks. Mm -hmm. That is a dystopian memoir. Mm The problem is the dystopia is us.
0: Yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, Roots, Mm -hmm. Alex Haley's Roots, it's a dystopian book.
0: That's an interesting uh, perception.
1: Anything about Nazi Germany, A Diary of Anne Frank, that's a dystopian book.
0: Well, and, and now now that you mention it, in many ways, uh, Orwell's uh, 1984 is, for all its dystopian nature, is also very much a memoir of his work in, during World War II. And, in and fact, he wanted to uh, yeah. call it 1948, I and mean, they said, no, Switch no, the no. numbers. Oh, yeah, it's about that. post-war,
1: isn't it? Yeah. It's about post-World War II uh, life in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, I think you hit on that in, in the interview with... Uh, with Atwood, which was wonderful, um, one of my real literary heroes. Mm-hmm. *The Handmaid's Tale* is perhaps my my favorite dystopian novel, and uh, *Year of the Flood* would be uh, close behind.
0: Now, um, talk about uh, creating a, a character arc for for your rock and roll star, Dana. Ha- how did you uh, did when you started out this no- as a as a both song and a novel? Mm-hmm. Did you know where you were going to end up and or did you just have to write your way there?
1: More of the latter. I'm not much of an outliner, Mm -hmm.
0: really much more
1: in my writing and in my teaching of writing, always striving to imbue this uh, value of being open to where the process takes you. Mm -hmm. Um, A collaboration between your conscious planning self and your unconscious dreamy gray part. I knew I wanted her to go out to the Badlands because it seemed like the perfect place uh, for her to kind of recover and rediscover herself and, and, and make the point that recovery is a misnomer because you're not going back to who you were. You are going somewhere else entirely because you can't help but be dramatically changed by the experience of depression. Um, what was the question?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I wandered a bit. <laughs> uh, how, how you got from when you started your book, how you, you determined the character arc? I took one of these little two and
1: a half by five inch notebooks out to the Badlands, went Mm. there several times. I tried to do everything that Dana might do. Mm. I tried to walk and hike and horseback ride and meet people and observe nature and weather and everything else in her boots, in her hiking boots. And then I just simply wrote, 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 wrote wrote notes. And then I would go back to the cabin at night and uh, write a scene from those notes. And then I'd go back to Evanston, Illinois after the trip and turn the rest of those notes into scenes. This is an example, unplugged, of a book in which setting determined plot.
0: That's very interesting. Thanks. Now, um, you you mentioned teaching, and, and I think that's an interesting uh, uh, fact that, that you are a teacher. Um, talk about uh, how that process of trying to teach creativity, which many might say you can't teach, or teach people how to access their creativity, uh, how, well, how do you approach it? And talk about the kind of feedback loop that that creates with your own work. OK, the first part of that, mostly what I teach
1: is helping students to free themselves from bad teacher's past. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a liberator. OK, right? good. I try to be. And uh, often I hear that from them at the end of the term. Um, they've been a pr- in a program somewhere. That tells them how to write fiction, mm-hmm. um, gives them the do's and don'ts, uh, usually leans heavily on outline, and uh, my approach is much more about, again, being open to process, open to where the journey takes you, writing as a, as a journey rather than a destination you know uh, So that's what I mostly try to imbue that and, and a few pet peeves of mine that I always tell them, you know this is, this is me, this is not carved in stone, but Try not to rely too much on backstory and on flashback, particularly in the beginning of a piece. Mm. What you need to do is introduce me, the reader, to your characters in the moment. Let me spend time with them in the here and now. Then move not backward to what happened the day before or in their childhood, but forward to the next scene and the next scene and the next scene. I'm developing, as a reader, shared history with these characters, which is much, a much richer experience than the author, godlike saying, okay, we're going to stop the story now so I can tell you what happened when she was eight. I don't want the, reader to be, I don't want the writer to be God. I want the writer to dis- disappear. My goal as a fiction writer is to disappear. Spend some time with these people. Develop shared history with them. Accompany them on their journey and forget that Paul McComas exists.
0: That's a really that's a, seems like a sensible approach to me. You're a teacher, mm-hmm. and you're a writer, and um, I think one of the things that comes through in, in your work is uh, it's more of a kind of a hard Scrabble look at life. You're you're not a guy who who is as of yet. Rich and famous, <laughs> and you're not. Nor are you writing about. <laughs> there's the next blurb right there.
1: <laughs> Novelist Paul McComas is not yet rich or famous.
0: <laughs> well, uh, what I'm getting at is, is that I think there's an interesting economic awareness underlying your work. Thank you. A- a- and I'd like you to talk about that and about because you talked about. Uh, you know, walking around the desert to, to, to do unforgettable. I mean, you know. Unplugged. I'm unplugged, I'm sorry. It's my fault for making <laughs> yeah. two books similarly <laughs> yeah. titled. That? I'm, I'm, I'm holding you to that. Yeah. Uh, good, <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, and you talked about teaching. I mean, you and you're, you play music regularly. I'm sure you've done this uh, for all your life, you've done on and off Pretty periods. Much. Yeah. Um, Talk about you know making sure that you have a roof over your head, <laughs> especially now in a when in a time when you know both you. This is very interesting because you've seen the whole music business, the the music business that might have made you rich and famous, mm-hmm. come apart at the seams. Yeah, and the writing business that Starting might have made you rich and famous <laughs> is also. Yes, coming the hubcaps are off. We're waiting
1: for the wheels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, you got to do what you love. Mm-hmm. You know. I, Do what you love and success of some sort will follow. No, I'm not rich and famous, but I have four books of my own under my belt and two that I've edited, so half a dozen books. Um, I'm just grateful to have a career. I'm grateful to be published. I'm grateful that each book has been a little bit easier to sell than the one before. I'm grateful that Planet of the Dates has been optioned in Hollywood and is in uh, development and that Unplugged is now getting a a second look. nine years after the fact. Uh, I'm grateful for these opportunities, for the opportunity to drive through a torrent to <laughs> talk to you this morning, Rich. I'm one of the most grateful writers you'll ever meet. And I, it's never been about the brass ring for me. Mm-hmm. It's never been about, oh, I gotta get with Knopf, I gotta get with Doubleday. That'd be great if it happened. Mm-hmm. But how my stuff gets published, people read it, they come to hear me perform it in the bookstores, that's worth a lot. Does it pay the bills? No. Mm. Um, my dear wife, Heather, is a terrific fiction writer in her own right. She has the full-time job. I have a series of part-time jobs mm-hmm. teaching at a, a few different sites, speaking as part of a Chicago-based speakers bureau called News and Views, going to retirement homes, and libraries, talking about news of the day, always from a kind of a lefty slant, which they they love because those are the homes I'm sent to. Uh, and also doing presentations about literature and writing classes with the older population, which is wonderful. They have so many rich experiences to draw from. I still do a little figure modeling. You know, if, <laughs> if, if, if you're supporting your your muse, you do what she asks. And uh, thank God, Heather has a full-time job right now, and so we I mean, that's where the benefits come from. And uh, maybe we'll switch at some point, because I love her writing, and I'd love to see her have the uh, the time and opportunity to devote... Uh, to to it that I that I've had with mine.
0: That's uh, such an interesting uh, lifestyle and I think that too I think there's a real virtue in that for a writer because I think that in being more connected to the real world and, and going out there and giving the news to uh, people at uh, retirement homes I think that must give you uh, I mean, inspiration and insight into how people really live and the ability to write better about them and for them.
1: I think it does, and frankly, I think that posing nude for artists gives me a unique perspective, too. That novel <laughs> will come in time. I think it's called Model Husband, uh, or, or, or um, All Undressed and Nowhere to Go. <laughs> Someday I'll write that book. <laughs> but, I mean, your larger point I, I take to be that I'm not ensconced in the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. I dip into it a few times a week. I've always wanted to be a writer who teaches rather than a teacher who writes, because the teacher who writes too often becomes the teacher who used to write. Mm. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. That's not going to be me. My favorite living fiction writer, Joyce Carol Oates. She doesn't have to teach, but she does. Why? Because it's fulfilling, it's educational for her as well for the students, it's this dialogue with other people who value what we value. Fiction, the written word, characterization, um, the development of theme through, through allegory, which I think you know, the genre collection is is, is the best opportunity. Genre is so well suited to allegory,
0: and I love allegory. I love allegory. Uh, I can tell. Well, <laughs> let, let let's talk about unforgettable. Sure, this is a collection of fiction, and you know, you mentioned some of your uh, inspirations are Richard Matheson and Rod Serling, and and I think that um, a writer who is. I think seriously underestimated in his literary terms, but in terms of cultural impact, Broad Serling absolutely had an amazing impact he and did. really wrote what I would uh, consider um, the 21st century or 20th century equivalent of the Greek myths. Right. Uh, and, and so, talk about uh, your your willingness. To, one of the things I like about this collection, uh, Unforgettable, is it's all over the map. Thank you. It's everywhere. And I, all, I really like, too, um, your decision to include like little commentaries mm-hmm. inter- interspersed and clips from your plays. And I mean, this is a very interesting texture collection to read. So talk about uh, just making that decision You know, as opposed to, I'm going to put in 20 short stories right. and are just going to have just the stories with the title on the page and maybe a publication right. credit in the back. Right. This is a very different kind of collection.
1: You know, there's a way to answer both of your questions at once, and I think it boils down to this. I got to play Rod Serling. <laughs> you, you did? Know? When? I mean, I mean, well, I oh. have gotten to play him yeah. a number of times. I've, I've hosted film fests mm. in his persona. But, uh, <laughs> and I, I did a, I played him in a, an educational film about um, loan sharks called The Twilight Loan. <laughs> uh, but, but what I mean here is that I haven't typically introduced my work. I haven't been into commentary. Mm-hmm. I'm really much more a believer in uh, Sontag, you know, against interpretation and, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, intentional fallacy that the work has to, the notion that the work has to stand on its own. But Sterling always introduced those episodes, you know, in his incredibly classy, cool way. Uh-huh. And this was my chance, with a little bit of introductory text, to frame things. And I figured, you know, this is the time to do it. Uh, Let's just be Serling. And he was a hero, an absolute hero of mine. There was a time, I I, I blush to say, in my early teens when I would, when I happened to be wearing a sport coat, I would clench my teeth and speak in a most determined way. Just because, you know, that was about the height then that Serling ended up as. But Rod started by writing these unabashedly political leftist pieces like patterns. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even when he wasn't so political, he was writing stuff with soci- socio-cultural underpinnings like Requiem for a Heavyweight. Mm-hmm. And then when he did The Twilight Zone, some of his friends said, Rod, why are you writing a spook show? And he famously said something along the lines of, because I can't write about black people and white people for the network. But if I make them extraterrestrials,
0: I can get away with it something like yeah. that. Republicans and Democrats was another, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can put the words in the mouth of mouths of uh, Martians and Venusians that yeah. I can't put in, those, there you in, go. The, in the mouths of uh, Republicans and Democrats. Something like that, yeah, yeah. yeah and
1: they, how, how right he is. Now today, yeah, we can get away with talking about black people and white people, but it's more fun to keep doing it through allegory, and it's less hit you over the head. You know, there's a subtlety, a nuance to using the allegorical trappings of genre writing. Instead of just writing something that could go straight to the op-ed page, let the reader figure out what it's about. Let the reader have that Statue of Liberty moment <laughs> from the end of uh, the movie Planet of the Apes where you realize, oh, my God, this is about us. Let the reader do it.
0: Well, um, talk about uh, the your work in in the genres the various genres that are that we encounter here you know um there's there's a lot of science fiction and science fiction is suited to certain kinds of allegories Mm -hmm. so talk uh, tell me about you know your what's your favorite science fiction allegory in this book and and which one you know how did you come about it to you know write that
1: Because I borrow from Serling the notion of the ironic twist ending, it's very hard for me to talk about these pieces sometimes. (laughs) I mean, one of my favorite speculative fiction pieces in the book is the first one, Ice Diver. Mm -hmm. And it is very political, but you don't know it's going to be until you get to the end. And that's about all I can say about that piece, other than I love ice worlds, and it was great to be able to bring an ice world uh, to roaring life on the page. Driving down for this interview today, Rich, uh, in the torrent that has been pouring down since I got to San Francisco four days ago, I started thinking about a a rain world. (laughs) And I couldn't decide which way to go. It's either torrential rain every day, sometimes with thunder and lightning, and when this, the, the electrical activity stops, they all go out and picnic in the driving torrent. That was one <laughs> way to go. And the other way to go was they grew so accustomed to the driving torrential rain, they just do everything out there all the time. And on that rare day, when the sun comes out, they all hide inside because it seems somehow threatening. <laughs> you know, the, the, the ironic reversal that I love within, within genre, and especially within spec fic. Now, Generally, the science and science fiction that interests me is mm. not the tech stuff. Again, I'm sort of a Luddite, a Luddite who writes science fiction sometimes.
0: Well, well that makes sense. <laughs> 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 I, You've got to write what you're afraid of if you don't if you're <laughs> somewhat afraid of tech. That Maybe makes sense. that's
1: it. Maybe, and, and that's, you know, the title story in here is about childhood fear. Um, so are a couple of the other pieces. But you, in speaking with... Uh, with Matheson, you made this point. He doesn't have a lot of gizmos and gadgets, and mm-hmm. neither do I. No, no, no. Neither did Serling. You know, God forbid I should have eight pages about some contraption. What I learned from Bill Nolan, the Logan's Run author, that I'm, who I'm working with now, is just give it a self-explanatory name. Say that it's um, a silk slip. She was wearing a, a sheer green silk slip. Uh, say that the b- building was constructed out of light metal, L-I-T-E-M-E-T-A-L. We know what that is. Mm -hmm. The teens were engaging in their monthly omnimating ritual. Fine. I know what that is. (laughs) And and it's like radio theater, in a sense, let the reader fill in the gaps, and that way I can get on with the characterization and with the story. Now, in the new Logan's Run novel that Nolan and I are co-writing, there's a fairly lengthy scene that describes uh, a rather exotic futuristic dance by a dozen or so naked youths. Um, And We do describe that in some detail, but the difference is there are writers who would then tell you the entire history and origin of that dance. As long as I'm in the moment, it's okay to describe something exotic. But what I don't want is a lot of background and backstory. I don't want to get into Tolkien territory. I don't want to get into Ursula Le Guin territory. I want this story to move forward, Mm -hmm. and Nolan even more so. He's a shark. That story moves forward all the time, uh, or, or he, he believes it will die, and with it, the reader's interest.
0: Well, talk about uh, the working. You wor- wrote uh, you know, two novels. Uh, these are all short stories and some plays. Um, so talk about that kind of difference in just terms of the length of the format. Uh, sure. You must find yourself, do you find yourself frustrated when you're working in a short story by the fact that you can't, go into more characterization or offer more story, or are you just thrilled that all I have to do is punch (laughs) him in the face? (laughs) The latter. It's (laughs) vacation time.
1: Yeah, I I didn't think I was gonna do a short story collection again. I thought the 20 questions, my first book, which came out in 1998, would be the first and the last, because I was, I have been so enjoying the larger canvas of a novel, but I approached Steve Sullivan, a publisher of Walkabout Publishing in Wisconsin, um, about publishing a couple of my unpublished uh, genre stories, and he said, I'll go you one better. I like your work. Let's do your collection. And At first, I thought, geez, I don't know if I have enough. (laughs) Well, this book is 500 pages when all is said and done, (laughs) because what happened was nothing quite as motivating as someone saying, if you print it, we will publish. And the pieces just kept spilling out, spilling out, spilling out. I was taking a vacation from the long form. Mm -hmm. Don't believe anyone who tells you short stories are harder to write than novels. That's crap. I mean, that, that, a novel, a short story is juggling three balls, which I can actually do if you want to find some. <laughs> uh, the novel is juggling 11. Mm. And if you change something in chapter two, it's like a house of cards. You're pulling the card out, and the whole thing's going to potentially collapse. So this was Vacation. There's a long section, the longest section in this book, maybe 160 pages. is called Two Heads or Better. What's in there are 16 collaborative stories with 14 different writers including two with Bill Nolan, from our excerpted from our upcoming Logan novel. Uh, that was a lot of fun and very easy to do, easier than I had thought it would be. There was nothing that ended up, in terms of an, an entire story, nothing ended up on the cutting room floor. Each of those experiments was, I think, a success, and the other writer felt so, too. And, of course, it helped to be able to say not— uh, would you write a story with me that might one day get published, but would you write a story with me that will be published in February 2011? <laughs> <laughs> that was motivating to them, too. <laughs>
0: well, now, how did you come about deciding to put this 160-page collaboration in the book? That, that's an interesting decision.
1: Well, um, there were a few writers I knew I wanted to work with, like Nolan, like mm-hmm. my wife Heather. And uh, then as I saw how successful some of these collabs were turning out, I started to think of other people Mm -hmm. that I'd like to work with, too. And I think it worked because none of them has a sensibility radically different from my own. Mm -hmm. None of them are capital L literary authors. I don't read that. I don't write that. Um, I have a foot in literary fiction and a foot in the mainstream, and an elbow in genre. Mm-hmm. Although I've jumped into that pool, for, I think we've got more than an elbow with this book. <laughs> this five hundred pages is not an elbow. <laughs> you're <I> right. <laughs> you're right. I fell in. I leaned over to look, and I fell through the looking glass. Um, where were we? What was the question?
0: I got off. Collaborating with sixteen people, choosing that—that's a lot of. That's a lot of. That's a lot of volume.
1: It, I mean, yeah. None of them were capital L literary writers. None of them were postmodernists. No one was deconstructing. No one was navel-gazing. We all had the same basic sensibility of, let's tell a story with good characters, but that works on a genre level. And it was fun kind of getting into the voice in the head of someone else with them and inviting them into my own. I would not have been able to do this 10 or 12 years ago. I had to reach a level of confidence in my own writing That would allow me to let my guard down, and
0: really play in the sandbox with someone else sixteen different times. Now, uh, you've got. We talked a little bit about your your science fiction. Um, As a science fiction writer, as you say, you don't. You're not too interested in the tech. You're interested in creating something that will get you um, a unique take on character. On the human condition.
1: The sciences then would be sociology, psychology, anthropology, political science,
0: theology rather than anything having to do with gadgetry. Yeah. Uh, I, well you know I like the idea of uh, political science fiction uh-huh. um, and, and there's plenty of political science fiction in here uh, and, and I think uh, science fiction is a great way to as you say uh, do do commentaries on, on and satire. I mean what in fantasy what it's actually one of the ideal ones are you can you are you about to give us a reading Uh, a very short one okay great
1: the title is the most terrifying three-word dystopian slash dark fantasy slash horror story ever written (coughs) president sarah palin thank you Uh, (laughs) but to your broader point Planet of the Apes uh, Uh as a novel and as uh, I'm talking about the first movie here, the real movie, Mm -hmm. 1968. Uh, Satirical, very much so. Mm. Influenced by Gulliver's Travels for sure. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, effective science fiction, a great adventure story, and a wonderful political piece about where we're headed if we don't hit the brake Mm -hmm. uh, on, on the militarism and on the nuclear weaponry and so forth. Um, Logan's Run particularly the novel to a lesser extent the movie making satirical and speculative fiction points about the worship of youth culture and what is the logical ending to that you have a culture of nothing but young people and there's no wisdom and there's no maturity and there's stagnation and collapse Uh, Soylent Green based on Harry Harrison's novel Make Room Make Room rare case of the movie getting it better uh, by, by taking the, the Soylent from the novel, which was made out of soy, and pushing it, that next Hollywood <laughs> step, into <laughs> silent Green is people. Because if you're talking about humanity consuming itself mm-hmm. through overpopulation and overconsumption and, uh, and, and environmental destruction, how better to, to metaphorize that, if I can, mm-hmm. uh, by having us eat each other. And Soylent Green scared the out of me when I was a kid, Mm. I was 12 when it came out. Within a year and a half I was working for Mo Udall's, his presidential uh, campaign, Congressman Mo Udall, the environmentalist from Arizona. Mm -hmm. And there is a straight line between that movie and that volunteering Mm -hmm. and that lefty persona (laughs) that has inhabited me ever since. And now Soylent Green is coming true before our eyes.
0: It's very interesting. That uh, the the way that uh, you use science fiction. Now uh, the other genre, of course, you certainly work in is horror. Yeah. And I always have loved. I actually, I can't say that. Let me step back. I never really particularly liked the horror genre for a long time. I thought it was just about, you know, showing people hanging from meat hooks, (laughs) (laughs) and that that I found not so interesting (laughs) and kind of disturbing in a bad way, not a good way. (laughs) Um, Then when I read uh, Clive Barker's books of blood, Mm -hmm. it just showed me that you could use the horror genre in just an amazing a variety of fashions. Like you could do, write funny stuff, weird stuff, disturbing stuff, but all those things could just use to like, take human beings, and not just human bodies, but human emotions, right. and get the inside out. And I think that's one of the things you do well.
1: Thank you. You're on to something. And I, I think the, the analogy would be if speculative fiction and science fiction lend themselves particularly toward exploration of an anthropological and sociological nature, horror lends itself particularly well to psychology. And so the title story in here, Unforgettable, is about a little boy who visits the aquarium with his parents, gets separated from them in the crowd, and has just a terrifying experience at the moray eel tank, where the moray eel comes right up to the glass as if it's picked him out. And he harbors the fear of the moray eel for 20-some years. Until the last scene, when he decides to overcome his fear, um, come by hook or by crook. Uh, and and you know, what am I? What I'm writing about? What I'm writing about is the fact that when I was a boy, I was terrified of the pop song "Timothy," about <laughs> the miners who go into the mine and only all but one come out, and they come out with full stomachs. And that song scared me uh, blankless you know, throughout my childhood. (laughs) And well, it should. (laughs) As well, it should. Um, Rupert Holmes went on to write pop songs that in their own way were even scarier, like the Pina Colada song, uh, just because they were so atrocious. Uh, But the the power that that song had over me, I mean, into my teens and young adulthood, it kind of made me think, wow, when it gets imprinted so early and so deep, becomes such a part of you. And then you're afraid to tell anyone. You can't tell your parents. You don't want to tell anyone because you don't want to give it life. You don't Mm -hmm, want to invoke it and maybe evoke it as a result. So uh, that's what that story is about. And there's another piece in here that I wrote with uh, my colleague Lisa Janis called Maw. That's the one about the the water fountain, uh, drinking fountain shaped like a a life-size lion. You've got to put your head in its maw to drink. All the children in the community are afraid to do it, so it's a rite of passage. Little Jenny drank from Willie today, you know. <laughs> and of course, you know something's going to be ter- going terribly wrong in that story before it's over. But what I love is that it doesn't go wrong in the way you'd expect.
0: Well, that's that's one of your I think your talents is you do have a, a talent for the twist ending and, and for surprising us. And that what I have to ask is the stories that surprise us, do you surprise yourself first? And if so, how do you kind of make sure you capture that surprise in in language that's fresh for the reader?
1: The second part of that is really hard, so let me tackle the first only. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I surprise myself. Uh, When Lisa and I were working on Maw, she wrote the beginning and uh, worked with me on the rest, but I I wrote the, the latter part of it, and I didn't know how to end it because I knew how it would typically end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what? When everything's a twist, nothing's a twist anymore. Mm. So you have to do a kind of double twist or a reverse twist. <laughs> in comedy, they talk about the, uh, the punchline mm-hmm. and the button. So you got to find that button, you know, the double twist, the reverse twist. Um, well, but it's like the, the dystopian story in here called United Kinkdom, which imagines that uh, uh, a fetish shocracy is created in Amsterdam by a bunch of rebels from Denmark, Finland, Iceland, and California. Oh good,
0: we, have to be <laughs> we deserve to be represented. <laughs> I
1: think so, in this case certainly. And uh, you know, because kink is required and fetish is de rigueur, um, the only fetish left is vanilla. So similarly, if, <laughs> if everyone's expecting the story to twist, they can see the Statue of Liberty torch looming up over the horizon mm-hmm. and you've got to show them something else when they turn the corner. So I let myself be surprised. And then to get to the second part of your question if I, if I can try to how do you how do you retain that surprise um by staying with the characters. If all I as the writer know at any juncture in the narrative is what they know at that time, then even though a part of me may know what's coming or have some sense of it, Sticking with the characters, having my readers stick with the characters, not using an omniscient voice, uh, making it very much character-driven, I think is going to retain the surprise. So that it's not only shared history leading up to that point, but a shared revelation by reader, characters, and writer, mm-hmm. in a sense.
0: You employ a variety of voices and have co- collaborated with a variety of voices um, in this book. And, and in your other works, I mean, there's a lot. Of, you, you're a hard guy to pin down, and I wouldn't want to do that. So Thank you. Talk about uh, if your listeners like, hear some tussling here. <laughs> Rich is trying to pin me down now. <laughs> um, talk about the uh, trying to, uh, you know, going from one kind of voice to the next to the next. Where do you find that in the language, and where do you find it, like, in your soul? It is intuition, honest to God. Uh, are, are you I, an actor? I am. Okay, that am. would make sense. Then. Yeah,
1: I, I, I mean, I'm a writer who acts. Uh, mm-hmm. more of a writer than an actor, but I get very good uh, notices for my bookstore appearances because I did come up through Chicago's um, mid-'80s to early-'90s performance art, performance poetry, monologue scene, which was amazingly edifying and educational. Being able to take work I'd just written in front of a live audience and perform it and see what was working and what wasn't. So I tend to commit my work to memory when I can, or at the very least, get close to off-book. And work, uh, you know, if you come to one of the readings, you'll see I never hold the book in my hands. I've got scripts. I only use the top half of each sheet because I never want my chin in my chest. You know? <laughs> Simple things like that. Dialogue scene. I use a yellow highlighter for his part. And a pink one for hers, and he's looking down into the left, and she's looking up into the right. And then the the person at the reading can very quickly kind of glom onto who's saying what. Little tricks like that that will elevate a reading into a performance. It's dressing my work up in its nicest clothing. And I think that that leads to more sales and to more people reading my work. I do have a kind of a restless muse, and part of it is geared toward performance. But I've reined that restless muse in and tried to find ways for it to serve the primary focus toward fiction writing.
0: Now, You, you talked about this scene, the, this uh, mid-'80s Chicago scene. I really knew, knew nothing about it, so tell us all about that. How,
1: yeah. how Poetry Slam, you've heard of that, right? Sure. Uh, it, it, it has genesis in Chicago at the Green Mill Jazz Club.
0: How old were you when you first encountered this? Let's see.
1: Um... I first started doing this in '86, so I was 24, a perfect age to be introduced to something exi- exotic and exciting, and urban and slightly dangerous, mm-hmm. and, and uh, opportunities
0: to break the rules. Uh, how did you encounter it? I mean, where did, did you start out as a poet, and a poet, reading at a poetry slam, or, or the music must have been involved then too? '84, '84, you said.
1: Yeah, I was in a punk band yeah. uh, at the time down in Chicago, but really, it came from just having always enjoyed acting. I made 40-some odd, uh, very odd, in fact, uh, films when I was a teenager, science fiction and horror films and occasionally a comedy. And I would generally take the secondary role, often the villainous role, Mm -hmm. uh, and just really enjoyed hamming it up. Uh, So I've never been... (laughs) Yeah, really, imagine that. I've never been uh, self-conscious or uncomfortable in front of a camera or, or a bunch of artists, for that matter. So, you know, you use that fact. Okay, if I'm comfortable... Uh, in fact, I kind of enjoy the limelight, the spotlight, then why don't I get off book? Why don't I do something that's more like a performance than a signing? Now, back then in the 80s and early 90s, I didn't have a book. I had a few stories out there in random magazines. But it prepared me for now, for bookstore readings, for interviews, um, in in a way that uh, I wouldn't have been prepared if I hadn't sort of immersed
0: myself in performance, live performance at that time. You know, you talked about having a few stories out there in the 80s. That was kind of the birth in some ways of – or one of the big births of of the small press, small Mm -hmm. genre press. And I think that that's – you can draw a pretty straight line from – in fact, you can draw a straight line from cemetery dance. Yes. Uh, I actually have issue number 1 somewhere wow. in my stacks. Wow. Wow. <laughs> when I, uh, and uh to now, right. where they're now a big publisher. They're publishing Stephen King and Dean Coons and and a lot of, you know, uh, more mainstream authors. Talk about, you know, your experience with uh walk about publishing and some of the uh, the small presses now, smaller presses, and you know, it's almost not really a small press because there are you know the press and the distrib- distributors have kind of collided and colluded and you know it's ingram if he can get stuff through right. ingram one if one guy can get stuff through ingram all of a sudden he's a publisher that's right
1: that's right well it, it's called micro publishing or mm-hmm. at least that's the term that sullivan at walkabout uses
0: mm, i like that term that's yeah micro publishing like, like micro brewing yeah
1: <laughs> um there was a newspaper that shall be nameless that uh, recently referred to my book as self-published and i called him up and said i'm sorry where did you get your information from? And he said, well, you know, I, I hadn't heard of this publisher. And uh, you made quite an assumption there, didn't you? Why don't you talk to Steve Sullivan, who spent about 800 hours on this project and, uh, and is paying me a royalty, and ask him if it's self-published. No, it's micro-published. The technology has reached a point where you don't need to do 1,000 or more copies and do a print run. You know, in the same way that some of the print-on-demand outfits work, a micro-publisher can use uh, a printer to, to, you know, print, bind, and send one copy or a 1,000 or 10,000, depending upon their needs. And you know, that doesn't make it self-publishing. It makes it micro. Uh, but the micro is a misnomer because, as you say, the reach is vast. The reach is infinite. You know, the reach is worldwide can get these books on Amazon, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in a couple of days. Uh, it, it is exciting, the democratization uh, of, of the system, um, and it makes up somewhat for the fact that when people like Matheson and Serling and Nolan and Chuck Beaumont, um, Damon Knight, is that it, Damon Knight? Yeah. To Serve Man, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when they were publishing, there were were myriad You know, pulp magazines.
0: Well, also Playboy. And and Playboy was (laughs) actually publishing this stuff. The Party,
1: Nolan's The Party, considered one of the classic horror stories, originally appeared in Playboy. Right. Um, There were more markets, more small markets than for individual stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But through micro publishing, there may be more
0: markets now uh, for collections. Um, one thing that is important though is that you're not self-published right and I think that this brings I wanted you to talk about the importance of having you know the publisher and the editor as a gateway mm-hmm. for quality and quality assurance I mean things like yeah. cop from copy editing to saying I'm sorry I know how much you like the story but it just we got to leave this one out. Right,
1: right. Oh, and, and Steve, he was judicious. He made a few excellent suggestions about content, mm-hmm. You know, as have my, my past publishers. The Permanent Press out of New York who published Planet of the Dates, they had a handful of very well-chosen suggestions. And I put suggestions in quotes, of course, because that's your boss talking. <laughs> uh, but I think you're right. The downside of the democratization is that the gates are wide open. Um, at least in terms of self-publishing. And so it does matter um, that this book of mine comes through uh, a, a more standard uh, publishing approach where there is some critical attention paid uh, before it's published. And it's not going to be published if that critical attention comes down on the wrong side. Uh I sound a little bit like the guy who, having gotten on the boat, is now pulling the ladder up behind me. (laughs) I probably would have availed myself of of easy, cheap self-publishing back in the 80s, but maybe it's good that I didn't have that opportunity. It made me fight and struggle and work and hone my craft until people started saying, yes, we'll publish. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And maybe the downside— for these young writers coming up now and saying, you know, I'm not going to deal with all the rejection. I'm just going to self-publish. Maybe they're not being challenged in the same way
0: mm-hmm. that I was coming up. Now I sound so crotchety uh, when I say things like that. I hate, <laughs> it. I hate it. I hate to sound that way. Well, no, I think there's a there's more than an element of truth that that uh, enduring rejection is a big part of coming coming up with stuff that's craft worthy. It's a big part of growing up, for that matter. Sure, isn't it? Now. You're working with uh, Bill Nolan on a new uh, Logan's Run novel talk, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there's a new uh, Mm -hmm. adaptation of the original coming out.
1: Yes, and and it's pertinent, uh, actually, the one to the other, because we've we've got a draft done Mm -hmm. of Logan's Journey. Mm -hmm. It is the first Logan novel in a third of a century, as it says in big splashy type on the back of my new book, Unforgettable. Um, It is the fourth Logan novel overall, and we've been kind of— dragging our feet on the revision because Warner's been dragging its feet for 14, 15 years since it got the rights from MGM on this remake. Brian Singer was supposed to direct. He s- decided to do X-Men 2 instead. Then it was backburnered for Tron rebooted or whatever. It was even, ugh, my God, it was backburnered for Speed Racer. That's just sad, you know? <laughs> well, I- <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, it seems to be on track now. The writer whose name escapes me, who's doing the adaptation, I'm very excited uh, by the choice because this is the guy who adapted uh, one of my favorite dystopian novels, Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Mm. Adapted that into a fine, fine screenplay last year. Movie that should have gotten more attention. Um, and I, I don't recall the director, but they have Ryan Gosling um, on board to play Logan, mm. which suggests to me they might not be going to the novel's death at 21. They may be sticking with the first movie's death at 30 or mm-hmm. maybe 25 or something like that. I am holding in my hands, and of course this works so well on radio, a big chunk of the manuscript for the new Logan novel, just to show you that sometimes... <laughs>
0: Um, Boy, there's more crayon in there than there is print (laughs) Sometimes
1: Bill and I are very much on the same page Literally and figuratively Other times (laughs) You'll find that he has put a big X through page 229 And said, Paul, though well written This page does not work for me We don't need it And again, it slows the real action of the scene Just trust me, okay? (laughs) I love Bill to pieces He is my literary father um
0: how did you meet him how did you how did this come about
1: yeah when I was 14 I sent him some of my genre work Mm -hmm. and uh, then I got an envelope back a few weeks later and my heart was pounding and I ripped it open and he said you've done a wonderful job I was writing at your age too Uh, keep going you've got the Logan spirit well that was one of the probably seminal experiences in my youth that convinced me to actually try and make a life out of this stuff then in 2002 I was invited to perform some of my darker work at a horror con uh... in Chicago where it turned out that he was going to be getting a living legend award and uh... I called my sister in Milwaukee and said would you find my scrapbook in the closet of mom and dad's place and find this letter that Bill Nolan wrote to me in 1977 and, uh, <laughs> and mail it to me and I, I mailed a copy of it to Bill and I don't think he remembered me. I mean, that would be crazy if he remembered me, but he certainly recognized his own handwriting and he greeted me at that con like uh, a long lost son. We've been real tight ever since and next thing I knew we were writing forwards for each other's next books and uh, lo and behold, he invited me to write the, uh, the fourth Logan novel with him. The only person who would be more excited about that opportunity than me today is me at 14 or 15. <laughs> he had somehow gone back through time and made that invitation. Or if I could go back through time and tell 14-year-old Paul, you know, you're going to be writing a Logan novel with Nolan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... I have been speaking with the 14-year-old, Paul (laughs) McComas, who did get that opportunity. And I have been speaking with Paul McComas. His new book is Unforgettable. Thank you for joining me, Paul.
1: Rich, thank you so much for making the time.